Our podcast touches on tough real-world issues like suicide, depression, and mental illness. If you're struggling with these issues, you can find support by texting PODCAST to 741-741 to connect with a crisis counselor. Or visit www.jedfoundation.org to learn about getting help in your community. Reach out to a friend or family member. We urge you to get the help you need. And we've provided a list of resources in our show notes as well. If you're a minor, we strongly encourage you to listen to our podcast with a trusted adult. And just a quick warning, there is some swearing in this episode. Welcome to Could Be Better, TBH, where we talk about all the things that, quite honestly, could be so much better. This show is brought to you by Crisis Text Line and the Jed Foundation. And I'm your host, Stacey London. We'll cut straight to the chase here. Today's episode is going to be hard, like really hard, because it's about suicide. And according to the Jed Foundation, suicide is the second leading cause of death among young people. And it often seems like a huge, overwhelming problem to solve. The gentleman that we are talking to today, his passion for this problem is palpable and his determination to work on such a devastating problem is truly astounding. We're talking to Dr. Jerry Reed, who is the Senior Vice President at the Education Development Center. His work is so difficult and it could very easily be heartbreaking. But instead, Jerry is hopeful in his research and he's hopeful about how far we've come and how far we'll go to solve this problem. Hi, Jerry. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Stacey. Thanks for having me. So let's get started. Um, What started you in the field of suicide prevention? Well, it really was quite um, an accident. I hadn't planned it this way, but I was um, a Department of Defense employee for many, many years as a federal employee and was selected to be a fellow on Capitol Hill. And when that happens to you as a federal employee, you have to find the place you want to work of the 535 members of Congress. So I looked at what I wanted to do and the kind of work I wanted to be associated with and chose um, Senator Harry Reid from the state of Nevada, who was on the aging committee, and I have a real passion for older adult issues. And so to make a long story short, I was accepted to work with Senator Reid for about a year. And in the context of that year, there was a hearing on mental health and the elderly held as part of the aging committee. And that was going to be on mental health. So when we went to the hearing, uh, Mike Wallace from 60 Minutes was a witness that day talking about his own battle with depression Mm. and how he got help and was um, really benefited from that intervention. And then Senator Reid said, if you're brave enough to talk about your battle with depression, I should share that my pop shot himself. And Senator Reid shared that day that he himself was someone who had lived experience and was a survivor of suicide loss in his own dad, and then said, Jerry, we really have to do something about suicide in this country. It's overlooked, and it's a leading cause of death. And that was literally when my career began to change. I invested my year with Senator Reid in suicide prevention, got my doctorate after that, and ran a nonprofit and now lead you know, several programs nationally in suicide prevention. So for me, it was kind of destiny, to be honest with you. It was, I was meant to be where I was, and I was the right person to take it on. It certainly sounds like it. What an incredible story. When you started, um, did you look at suicide prevention from the point of aging, 
and gerontology? Because I know that that's what your degree is in. Right. That was the first focus for sure. And a lot of our initial work was trying to build awareness that older adults had the highest rate of suicide. And just as suicide is not an expected behavior among older adults or mental illness, you know, it can be prevented like it can in any age group. So that's where we started. Mm. But it quickly changed when we introduced a resolution, Senator Reid's leadership. It was really suicide amongst all populations, calling it a national problem, warranting a national solution, and calling for the development of a national strategy for suicide prevention. And at that point, it really became a lifespan concern rather than just the elderly. Yeah. I mean, can you share some of the critical research you've done around violence and suicide, uh, particularly as it started to change and shift, not just towards the elderly, but in all age groups? Sure. I I think the most important thing I could share is when this was 1997, when Senator Reid introduced the resolution to bring attention to suicide and Representative John Lewis, our incredible civil rights leader Mm. from Georgia, did the same thing on the House side. Basically, um, that was to lift the veil of secrecy around this issue, recognize that suicide at the time was the 11th leading cause of death. And we had no legitimate public policy response to trying to reduce that burden on the population. So when we first started, it was really, you know, where do you begin to address the 11th leading cause of death? So we had a major conference in Reno, Nevada that brought together the experts in the country to help us figure out what do we know about suicide? What do we not know about suicide? And what can we do about suicide? And kind of make it not just a mental health challenge, but a public health challenge. Mm. It's not just an issue around depression or bipolar disorder or whatever, or schizophrenia, it has a lot to do with life circumstances and where you live and how you live and the communities you live in and things that really have a lot more to do with society than they do just exclusively the individual. So that's where we started, really turning the light on about a comprehensive, integrated public health approach. Uh, I, I really want to talk about that for a second, because I, I think that that is something that most people are unaware of. Right. I think that when people think of suicide, they immediately think of mental health. And at that time, really, even into the late 90s, people were still talking about mental health in this shroud of secrecy. You know, when you look at even in the last 20 years, the strides that we've made in being able to talk about mental health, when we have things like Crisis Text Line, when we have things like the Jed Foundation, when there are, you know, celebrities speaking out, Mike Wallace certainly being one of the first, William Styron, even in, back in the day, being one of the first people to talk about depression. You know, these were things that you didn't hear about. You, you were supposed to keep a secret. Suicide probably being one of the biggest. So to make this distinction between mental health and public, health. When you had that first big sort of, you know, a meeting about what to do, when you talk about life circumstances, can you explain some of those that really contributed to the idea of suicide being such a huge issue, the 11th cause of death in this country? I mean, that's no small number. That's a massive number. Right. And I think you're absolutely right. And what we did find early when you began to dive a little deeper into the data, you, you at the time, there was about 30,000 suicide deaths a year in the country. Today, that's about 47,000 deaths a year. So the rates are increasing, sadly. But there's a massive infrastructure that's now in place, like Crisis Text Line, and certainly the Jed Foundation, and many, many other organizations 
that have kind of grown organically and really are there to provide an infrastructure to people in the nation. But when you looked at the numbers, you saw that 20 per day were perhaps veterans. Older adults had the highest rates of suicide. Mm. LGBT youth, LGBTQ youth, you know, struggled with attempts. Females struggled with attempts where males struggled more with completion. So you began to peel back the onion and realize one size doesn't fit all. And it's not all mental illness. Sometimes it can be the breakup of a relationship, the loss of a job, or, you know, perhaps um, not getting into a school you wanted or making a team you wanted to be on. It certainly is also depression and bipolar disorder and substance misuse, but that in and of itself doesn't explain the complete situation around suicide. And we've kind of come to learn one thing. Suicide is a complex issue that's going to require a complex solution. And the best metaphor I've ever seen for this, Stacey, is imagine a glass of water in the sink with a slow and deliberate drop hitting the glass. And slowly and slowly and slowly the glass fills up until at one moment a drop hits the glass and it begins to overflow. Mm. In many ways, that's the story of suicide. It's not one thing that led a person to end their life. It's probably an accumulation of many things that was accentuated by one event that was not in and of itself isolated. It was a collection of many things over that person's lifetime. It could have been exposure to violence as a child. It could have been being a victim in a, in a violent community of some traumatic event or witnessing domestic violence in their own home. Those adverse child experiences um, really do matter and without being addressed can manifest themselves later in life in the form of suicidal behavior. Uh, I mean, to me, this is exactly what I was going to ask you is that, you know, is there a breaking point? Is there some moment when you talk about that one drop that sort of makes the glass overflow? Is there research, is there data showing that the brain somehow changes? Because I'm just curious, you know, it seems to me like humans, like any other animal, have self-protective mechanisms in place, right? Is there any data or, or any understanding around what would make the brain be able to shift towards attempt, towards completion that we understand? Because as you say, the numbers are increasing. Is it because we're seeing more violence in society, more intolerance towards people who are other? What is it that we're looking at? And are we understanding more? more about neurology and what the brain is actually doing in order to be able to understand why we're seeing that increase? I think the answer is yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> neurology, neurology plays a part. Biology plays a part. Chemical imbalance plays a part. But so does the environment. And I think that's the point I'd really want to make really clear in our conversation. It's both and, not either or. Mm. And so we have to be mindful about the complexity. It's not like traffic accidents where if you put on a seatbelt, you can save a life. We don't have the seatbelt solution yet in suicide prevention. It's only been 20 years that we've really been researching it, that federal focus is really on the issue, that infrastructure is really being built, and that services are really being expanded to the point that they're available for people, much like what the Jed Foundation does for colleges and certainly Crisis Text does for all people who have the benefit of reaching them and their services. So I think that's a really important thing for us to be mindful of. And um, the more we do that, the more effective we're going to be. 
But I think, for example, if you think about suicide only as a mental health problem, for example, then you might miss the opportunity to reduce suicides because of the way we might cover suicides in the media. Mm. There is a reality, for example, about contagion, and that if you are overly dramatic or you're, you romanticize a death, you could, in fact, be inadvertently um, suggesting to someone who's at risk that that may be the solution. And in reality, people who do take their life by suicide, they don't want to die. They just want to end their pain. So the real challenge for us is how do we end that pain? And to your question, when you take a public health approach, you look at what are the risk factors for suicide and what are the protective factors for suicide? And if you can reduce risk and encourage protection, you do the best you can to give that person the skill set to live. And that's what we should all be focusing on. How do we reduce risk by getting people the help they need, connecting with them, promoting their engagement with others, and teaching us all to be more compassionate about the people to our left and right as we go through life? Because you never know the influence you might have on someone who's struggling. Uh, I just want to go back a little bit to what you talked about when you talked about contagion. Um, but we just need to take a quick break here just so we can learn a little bit more about our sponsors and we'll be right back. Crisis Text Line provides free confidential support via text message 24-7. If you need support, text PODCAST to 741-741. And if you want to help people work through the challenges in life that could be better TBH, visit crisistextline.org slash volunteer to apply to become a crisis counselor. JED is the leading national nonprofit working to protect emotional health and prevent suicide for teens and young adults across the country. For more information, go to jedfoundation.org. This idea of contagion is very interesting to me because it spreads now because time is so different, right? With social media, right. we see things spread in seconds. Um, so whereas, you know, news used to travel because we saw it at 6 o'clock or 11 o'clock, things were shielded from children before. Now everything is available at every second of every day. Um, so when you hear, you know, a 12-year-old, a 9-year-old was bullied at school uh, because of Facebook or social media and uh, attempted were completed suicide. Uh, that spreads very quickly. Is that what you mean by contagion? It is. And there, there's a number of studies. There's a study that's not a study. It's pretty much a theory that there's the Werther effect, which was about a story written many years ago about young Werther, who um, in the story took his life. And there was an increase in suicide rates when that was studied and so young Werther became a contagion example. There's also a contrary effect called the Papageno effect, which basically says when you talk about hope and help and resiliency mm. and you promote that story, you help people see the promise of the future and not the despair of the future. Mm. And there, there's examples where in Austria with the metro system, there was a lot of coverage of suicide deaths on the metro. But when the suicide prevention experts intervene with the media in Austria and they stopped covering those su suicides in a sensational manner, rates went down. We've looked at that same concept here in the United States after the death of prominent celebrities like Anthony Bourdain or Kate Spade or Robin Williams. And in fact, outreach to helplines and crisis text and places like that 
increase dramatically when responsible reporting takes place. So I think the answer that I would offer to your question is, you know, as our field evolves, we have to look for every single opportunity to intervene with a partner to help them do their role. And the media has really stepped up to be a very solid partner. They want to cover this issue well. They don't want to be part of lives being lost. And so we've had tremendous success in getting a lot of the media to promote the crisis text line or the 1-800 number or websites that provide help seeking for people who might struggle. And, and I'm encouraged by that. But I think for those of us in the field, we have to constantly be looking at both the media, our faith providers, the competencies of our healthcare systems, the competencies of our clinicians. And you can never take your eye off the ball in terms of who might have a possible helping role in reducing the burden of suicide in the country. Sure. I mean, you talk about this idea of ending pain for people, right? I mean, everybody, to some extent, is going to experience pain in their own lives. But this tipping point of pain, um, and you talk about the idea of reducing risk, encouraging protection, reducing risk, encouraging protection. The things that you just listed, getting the press to be, you know, sort of more on our side, you know, more positive. What do you think about role models? Um, You know, we've seen a lot of sort of young, famous people people who are, you know, sort of well-known celebrities come out and talk about their own issues. And we're seeing a lot of non-for-profits sort of enlist them either to talk about anxiety, depression, um, their own attempts to take their life, things like that. Do you think that that has been helpful in sort of, I, you know, I don't say this lightly, but the hashtag Me Too movement mm-hmm. um, isn't just limited to sort of, you know, women and being attacked, harassed, raped. It's this idea of Me Too, to me, at least in in this generation, is really about opening up and sharing experiences so that people feel less alone. Do you feel that that's been helpful when it comes to looking at the issue of suicide? The less people feel that they are alone in this issue, the more helpful it is? I think you're spot on. And, you know, I am very mindful. I've been in this field now for quite a long time, but the courage of people like Demi Lovato, who I really admire, mm. and the great work that's been done by those with lived experience, who we, we basically, that's a description that we use for people that have had experience either with an attempt themselves or with the loss of a loved one, and have much to add to this conversation in terms of how we can better serve people who present for suicidal behavior when they visit a clinic or a therapist or a faith community provider or whatever. The more that people can convey that you're not alone and you're not the only person experiencing this, many of us have experienced it and many of us have come through this, is really, I think, a real offer of help to people to know that, you know, yes, you are in pain, but yes, this can pass when you know that others have been through this and gotten through the challenge that you're experiencing. And basically count on us to help you get through that. Because very often the crisis, which leads to suicidal behavior, passes very quickly. It's sometimes between five minutes and one hour. And if you can introduce some sort of intervention, which keeps someone away from access to a lethal mean, for example, during that 55-minute period, that crisis will subside and they have a chance for tomorrow. Wow. Without that, they don't. Wow. So I think it's really important for us to be thinking. That's why I love the public health approach. It gives us the opportunity to think about the entire community and where someone who struggles might touch. Law enforcement, for example, 
maybe an emergency admission to a you know 72 hour um, psychiatric hold is not in the best interest of the patient. Mm. And that's what we learn from people with lived experience. That didn't help me. Something that might be better is a 24 hour center where I can just decompress with other people who understand what I'm going through. And then I can walk out feeling much better about tomorrow. And you give me a safe space to pass that 55-minute window. Right. Oh, that's amazing. I'm, I'm curious, though, because you also said in an interview, you mentioned that the U.S. is not on track to meet its target of reducing suicide by 20% by 2025. Can you expound on that, on, on how the country planned to meet this target and what progress we have made and, and why we're having challenges in achieving that goal? Well, I think that's a very fair question. And it was only about three or four years ago that we accepted a national goal. Up until that point, we had never set one. But you see where it's done in other public health or health areas that it really inspires and aspires people to really shoot for the best possible delivery of, of effort that they can. And so we did say we would like to reduce the rate of suicide by 20% by 2025. And that's not just America. The World Health Organization set that goal. They set 10% for all member nations to reduce suicide by 2020 by 10%. Other nonprofits have set similar goals like Project 2025, operated by our colleagues, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. And the concept there is to look for areas where by applying an intervention, we might have a major opportunity to reduce the loss of life that incurs. So maybe just a simple conversation between healthcare providers and patients and their families about access to lethal means and how important safe storage for a medication, for a poison, or for a firearm is for someone at risk. So you can introduce that time and distance between thought and behavior is what it's all about. So as we look for where we might have the best success at reducing the burden, mm. we're trying to apply those those interventions with the communities that can help us, you know, advance that idea and ultimately reduce the burden. But we've been at it for about three years through our Action Alliance for Suicide Prevention. And I'm very encouraged by where we are, but I'm also pragmatic. And I realized that, you know, 20 years ago, we didn't even say the word suicide prevention in America. And today we have a national strategy. We've already revised it. Yeah. We have a national hotline. We have crisis texts. We have groups like Jed Foundation, and every state has a suicide prevention coordinator. Every VA hospital has a suicide prevention coordinator. And the infrastructure that we've built in the country to respond to those needs is so much more capable today and so much more um, you know, advanced that I'm, I'm hoping we're close to a tipping point and we can really, with assurance and with real conviction, let people know who are struggling silently on their own, thinking they're alone, that that is just not the case. There are people out there who can and will and are standing ready to help you at a moment's notice. Oh, uh, that's so inspiring. <laughs> um, and I know this may be uh, territory we've already covered, but on could be better to be, you know, we like really like to make space uh, to talk about really the hardest shit in life. Right. And, um, <laughs> you know, we, we also want people to know that there is help out there, which is exactly what you've been saying. And what would you say to anyone who finds themselves in this type of situation that, you know, what could be better, to be honest? Would you say, reach out to a crisis text line? Would you say, you know, just what you said before, there are people at the ready 
to help? Do you see these things and these programs expanding? Do you see that there are not just um, that we're going to see this as a mental health issue, a public health issue, but that there will be more uh, institutions that are going to adopt programs that will be able to, at a moment's notice, help people? Because my fear is that, you know, you're going to start getting insurance companies involved. It will be about money. It won't be about the humanitarian aspect of this, which is really what you've been talking about. You have been talking about looking left or right to the person that is there and saying, I've got you. I'll help you. I speak your language. We share the same humanity and feelings, and we've all been there. Um, What happens when it becomes more complicated than that, more fiscally complicated. How do we make the situation better? Great question. And I, you know, I will say, you know, I'm an optimist by definition. I'm an Irish kid who just, I've been there when there was nothing and I see what there is today. So I know it could be better, but I know it is so much better than it once was. Yeah. And so what what I would say to you is that this year, we have more appropriations for suicide prevention from the national government than we've ever seen before. That's a good start. Ever. <laughs> That's, you know, and, and I think, you know, we have the Action Alliance for Suicide Prevention, which is a public-private partnership that has all the right people from the federal government. It's also got people like Kaiser Permanente and Optum and, and Johnson and & Johnson and Facebook and the NFL. We've got participants from the public and the private sector coming together, recognizing this isn't a problem that's partisan or this isn't a problem that happens to the rich or the poor. It happens to all of us. So the more we can take territory out of it, and not make it about greed, but make it about compassion and humanity, which is where it belongs. We don't, years ago, we, I remember as a child, um, we didn't say cancer. Right. We said the C word. Right. Because we were so afraid if we said it, yeah. we might catch it. And the same is true with suicide. We've learned to say it because if you can't say it, you can't understand it. And if you don't understand it, you can't help minimize it and save lives. So we've gotten over that hurdle, I think, I mean, to a large degree, still exists. I'm not going to pretend that everything is rosy, but I do think we've made steps in the right direction. And I think the fact that the National Resource Center is established in law, it's not discretionary, it's a law. The nation is standing behind suicide prevention. The Defense Department, the, the Veterans Affairs Department have national strategies for suicide prevention. They didn't exist five years ago. And the fact that the president in an executive order directed that the VA come up with a really solid proposal to reach veterans who struggle, that's the White House. That's the top of our government. So when you look at the public sector engagement and you look at the wonderful work being done by the nonprofits like JED and all the other organizations like Crisis Tech, it's not an accident that so much is happening to lift the veil of secrecy and to to let people know that we're in it together. And connectedness is the bottom line single word I would use. We have to promote connection with each other and re-engage with our neighbors, re-engage with our children, learn the warning signs, the risk factors. And if someone you love is not acting the way they did a week ago or two weeks ago, and they seem dramatically different, that's probably a really good reason for you to sit down, having a caring, compassionate conversation about asking them, tell me where you hurt and tell me how I can help. Sir, thank you so much. This has been a wonderful conversation. How can people find and support your work? 
I would love if they'd visit our, our website, the www.sprc.org, or they can visit the Action Alliance for Suicide Prevention.org, all one word, or the Zero Suicide Institute. But it's really a national response. You can find things at the Crisis Text website, certainly at the Jed Foundation website. This is a community that's come together with one interest, and that's to save the people who struggle and get them to help. And so anywhere you go, you're going to find good information, but I'd love them to visit our website as well as those of our colleagues to get the help. You don't have to go at this alone. You can call me if you need to, and I'll talk it through with you. That's how deeply I feel about this. Well, it's um, your passion is apparent, and it's been uh, lovely, lovely to talk to you. A difficult subject, but you really make it such a hopeful one. Thank you. Well, Stacy, thank you for having me on the podcast, and I wish you all the best. I know this was a tough episode, guys, but I hope you found it a hopeful one. Thanks for tuning in to Could Be Better TBH. I was so moved by my conversation with Dr. Jerry Reed. His optimism is contagious, and I hope he inspired you to check in with the people around you. Be kinder with your words and send a text right now to someone you love, for real, because we're in this together. You guys, I can't believe it, but this is the final episode for season one of Could Be Better, TBH. I hope we inspired you to talk more openly about the tough and painful moments in your own life. You know, at the same time, our goal is to make you realize that things can honestly be better and that no matter how dark your days can get, you can get through them. Just like the amazing guests we've had on the podcast, days can get brighter and your future can be brighter. While we're on a break, please continue to follow our work on Instagram. You can find us at Crisis Text Line, Jed Foundation, and me, Stacey London Real. Crisis Text Line and the Jed Foundation produce the show with help from Human Group Media. And, you know, we'll catch you guys on the next season of Could Be Better TBH. Take care and we'll see you then.